You can go ahead, saints, and open your Bibles to Psalm 1. I often will give an introduction prior to reading the Scripture passage each morning, on Sunday mornings, that is. Today, we're just going to jump right to it and read Psalm 1 and 2. And then I will give kind of a two-part introduction after having read the text for us. If you have a Bible with you, it will help you to open it and follow along as we make our way through Psalm 1 and 2 this morning. If you don't, don't worry about that. We're going to get the words to the sermon text on the screen behind me. Listen now to Psalm 1 and 2. This is the word of God. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Amen. We thank God for his word today and every day. Part one of a two-part introduction. Just track with me for a minute. If I were preaching only Psalm 1 this morning, and not Psalm 1 and 2, I might have, if I'd have wanted to be clever or cute, which I generally don't like to be, those things, I would have probably entitled a sermon on Psalm 1, you probably think this psalm is about you. Many people memorize Psalm 1. They're encouraged to memorize Psalm 1 and are told that the point of the psalm is the contrast between the righteous and the wicked. And they are to be righteous. That this, Psalm 1, is a description of them and what they could be if they rightly apply themselves. Now, don't misunderstand me. We are going to consider secondary level application to us from these Psalms this morning. We're going to do that but we are going to consider the main point of these psalms and even the main point of Psalm 1, we trust faithfully according to the entire counsel of God's word. 
There are so many passages in the Bible that we tend to misunderstand and misread this way. Instead of reading texts in light of Christ, we often read them in light of us. Like, and when I say that, what I mean is we read them in light of us and what we are to do. Instead of reading texts with law and gospel lenses on, we thought about that last week, we often read scripture, though we would never say it, with a kind of works righteousness perspective in view. A fairly popular commentary on the Psalms begins with these words regarding Psalm 1. Quote, it seems Psalm 1 was specially composed as an introduction to the whole Psalter. Certainly it stands here as a faithful doorkeeper, close quote. And then it goes on expressing a widely held view that we're already thinking about that Psalm 1 articulates the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked, and we are to be righteous. This in the minds of many Here's righteousness, here's wickedness, be righteous, is the tone setter for all 150 psalms in the minds of some. Serious question. This is framing our entire approach this morning. Serious question. If Psalm 1 is a doorkeeper in that sense, how does anyone get past the threshold of even its first verse? let alone the other five that come after it. It was in ways, this happens occasionally, as you read modern commentary on Scripture. It was frustrating and at points discouraging that there was hardly any Jesus in anything that I read this week on Psalm 1. We're going to consider him this morning. Second part of our introduction. It is right to see Psalms 1 and 2 and again, we're going to think about this, that they were written as a poetic unit, right? They were separated in our modern renderings. That's fine. But they were written as a poetic unit and historically understood that way. It's right to see Psalm 1 and 2 serving as a preface to the entire Psalter, the book of Psalms. But if we're going to understand them, there are some things we need to have in view. So I'm just going to rattle a few of these off. These are things that will help us this morning. There is a covenantal backdrop to Psalms 1 and 2. You remember the promise of God, the promise of the covenant of grace made in the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, of a promised offspring who would come and redeem fallen man. You remember the covenant that God made with Abraham, a promise of land and descendants and kings, and the promise in particular of a unique offspring, singular, who is Jesus. That promised offspring would provide the new covenant. You remember the covenant that God made with Moses where the moral law was given and we begin to understand better the necessity of keeping it. There was the ceremonial law also given to Moses, the sacrificial system, the priesthood, the feasts, the days, and then underneath and behind all that was what those things pointed to, the Redeemer who would come. There was the covenant God made with David where a promised son of David would come who would be a faithful son of God, who amongst other things would keep the law for God's people and represent them. So that's all some covenantal things. As I mentioned a minute ago, Psalms 1 and 2 are broken up in our translations, which is fine. 
In the tradition of Jewish rabbis, they were seen as one poetic unit, both of them comprising the first psalm. Early manuscripts, even, of the book of Acts, chapter 13, where Paul, in that passage, cites what we call Psalm 2 and verse 7, original manuscripts, most of them said, as it is written in the first psalm. Now, modern renderings, as they've separated Psalm 1 and 2, have changed that language, as is said in the second psalm, which is logical. That need not wig anybody out. In addition to the fact that these should be understood as just a poetic unit historically, I think it's easy to see when it's read out loud and you look even at your page. Psalm 1-1 begins, blessed is the man. Psalm 12 ends, blessed are all who take refuge in him. You can make that connection and see how it hangs together. We'll come back to that. Jesus understood the Psalms to bear witness about him. We thought about that two weeks ago, pointedly. The Emmaus Road account, Luke 24 where he unpacked for his disciples, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, and also in the Psalms, taught them everything that those texts said about him. Jesus spoke the words of the psalmists as his own. For example, on the cross, where he cites Psalm 22.1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The New Testament writers saw the Psalms to be about Christ. In the New Testament, Psalms are cited more often than any other portion of the Old Testament. At numerous points, the New Testament writers would put the words of the Psalms in the mouth of Christ. Though in their original context, they might have been penned by David or another author. The New Testament writers will pick that up and they will say that Jesus said this. This is why we trust Augustine called Jesus the singer of the Psalms. Many through church history have seen the same. We must read the Psalms redemptive historically. We must read them in light of the entire canon of Scripture. And we must read them in light of Jesus. We would be wrong to do it any other way. So all that by way of introduction. We've made it. We're now going to consider the text. I have a plan. I'm going to make two points and then offer a reflection. Those first two points will be from Psalm 1. Then I'm going to offer two points from Psalm 2 and an additional reflection. So you piece that together however you want. Four points and two reflections, six points, whatever does it for you. That's what we're doing today. All right. Point number one, we're going to consider the blessed man, the blessed man from Psalm 1 verses 1 through 3. Laying my cards on the table, the righteous man, the blessed man of Psalm 1 is Jesus Christ, period. Full stop. We're going to be thinking a lot about this throughout our time together today, so I'm not going to say it all at once. That theme is going to come out repeatedly. Right out of the gate, in his commentary on Psalm 1, Augustine, who many in the room were familiar with, church father, 5th century, father in some ways of Western theology, he writes this, quote, regarding Psalm 1, this is to be understood of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord man, close quote. This is all the more clear, the fact that the blessed man of Psalm 1 is Jesus. This is all the more clear when we remember that Psalm 1 and 2 were written as a unit. Blessed is the man, the Messiah, who we will read more about in Psalm 2, in other words. Jesus is the man who alone has pleased God and by whom alone salvation, joy, and peace are secured. 
Now, for those of you who are into grammar, I don't often talk about grammar in the pulpit, but it does matter in some way here. The verbs of not walking, not standing, not sitting in verse 1, those verbs are in the perfect mood, which emphasizes that the man in view is never involved with anything tainted with evil. That's important. Never. Jesus never walked in the counsel of the wicked. How about you? Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. Romans 3, Proverbs 1, Isaiah 59. Jesus never stood in the way of sinners. How about you? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Ecclesiastes 7. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Romans 3, Psalm 14, Psalm 53. Jesus never sat in the seat of scoffers. How about you? Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of vipers is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Romans 3, Psalm 5, Psalm 140, Psalm 10. Jesus delighted in the law of God and lived in light of it every moment. He always kept his father's word. He always did his father's will. How about you? The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Genesis 6. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Romans 1. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Romans 3, Psalm 36. Jesus is like a tree planted by streams of water. He bears fruit always. His leaf does not wither ever. Truly, he has prospered in everything he does. How about you? Consider the words of the prophet Jeremiah. These will sound familiar. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green, and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. The very next verse from the prophet Jeremiah, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Saints, we are not the blessed man of Psalm 1. We are not the righteous man of Psalm 1. Jesus is. The testimony of the scripture makes that crystal clear. Brings us to point two. The wicked and the righteous. The wicked and the righteous. Verses four through six of Psalm 1. Here, the psalmist is going to contrast the righteous man and then the wicked. 
He's just described the righteous man. And in verse 4, he says, the wicked are not so. They are not like the blessed man. They are like chaff. He is like a tree planted and rooted by a stream, fruitful, enduring eternally, prospering in all he does, but they are like chaff. Like something that the harvester discards to the wind and it's just gone, blown away. That's how easily the Lord will dispose of the wicked on the one hand, and that is how fleeting the wicked are. They will not endure. Verses 5 and 6 of Psalm 1, we read that the wicked will not stand in the judgment. That sinners will not stand in the congregation of the righteous. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, meaning he has a covenant relationship with them. Meaning he assures them. He cares for them. He protects them. He will welcome them into his joy forever. Amen? But the way of the wicked will perish. The Lord offers the wicked no protection. Their end is destruction, not peace. It's ruin, not joy. Which brings us to our first reflection. Living in light of God's word is the header for this reflection. Living in light of God's word. Consider the righteous man. He walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Now Jesus is that righteous man, and we, this is important, We who are in Christ by faith, we do seek to imitate him. Amen. Those of us who are in Christ by faith, because people ask, okay, brother, if Psalm 1 is about Jesus, does it have anything to say to us? You better believe it does. We seek to imitate the Lord because we're now safe, because we've been declared righteous, because he has rescued us. We are now free to seek to imitate him. Christ as example only damns us. Christ as Savior and Redeemer first. Okay, now we're free and we can seek to imitate him. Consider the words of the Apostle John. This is 1 John chapter 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Beloved, We are God's children now, and what we will be, glorified, right, has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, Jesus, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Then this, because of all that, and everyone who hopes in him that way, everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. That is how we think of this. Christ has saved me. He is my righteousness. He is my hope. He is my purity. He has purified me once and for all. And because I know that one day I'll be raised incorruptible, imperishable, I'll see him as he is and I'll be like him. I now seek and strive in freedom 
to purify myself as he is pure. It is in seeing, this is why we say this all the time, saints. The most important thing that could ever happen for us in any portion of our lives, most importantly, anything that ever happens here that is of value, the most important thing on Sunday is that we would see and behold the Lord Jesus Christ in word and sacrament. Why do we say that? It's because in seeing him, in beholding him, in knowing him, we are not only comforted, not only are we sustained, nourished, we are fueled in this life. It is in beholding the purity of Christ that we would be stirred, comforted, and propelled forward to pursue that purity. The law cannot motivate. It can only condemn. It can only guide. It can't change. Only Christ can do that. We will be conformed to his image, and we will be like him. God has promised us that, and in the meantime, we seek to purify ourselves as he is pure. We seek, in other words, to live and to love as Jesus did. Now, the language of meditating on God's law, let's zero in on that a little bit. In thinking about, still, reflection, right? We're thinking about living in light of God's word. When we read the word meditate, there's all kinds of modern things that we associate with that word. Sometimes we think about, you know, like Eastern religion. We're going to just shove that over here. I'm not even going to consider that. But a lot of us, I think, when we read this, he meditates on the law of God day and night. We think about setting aside special time for personal devotions. It's what we think. We're pretty reductionistic that way. In other words, to us, it's like, okay, well, this, not trying to be silly here, but it's almost like the psalmist is saying that the blessed man is faithful in his quiet times. But that's not what it means. It is far more all-encompassing than that. The emphasis here in the psalm is on reflecting on the word of God in daily life in, in all activity. In other words, to meditate on God's law in day and night is to perpetually respond to life in a way that is in accord with the scriptures. Now that is the work of God in us to be sure. That is what his spirit accomplishes in us via his sanctifying work. And the righteous man, now I'm using that in a different sense here. The one declared righteous in Christ, the one who is pursuing righteousness, trains his heart to think and to speak, and to act with wisdom according to the book. It's what we do. Now, in all of this, seeking to be Christ-like, seeking to live all of life reflecting rightly on the Word of God, a simple way to describe all of that is that we are simply, in this whole project, agreeing with the Lord and living accordingly. We are agreeing with God, the truth revealed in his word, and living according. We are agreeing with God about his law in its first use. We see its perfection. We understand its standard. We agree with God that we could never in our fallen state do that. We then, in agreeing with God in that, are agreeing with God about our sin and the fact that we are needy that we actually need a redeemer and we agree with God about who that redeemer is, 
Jesus and what he came to do. Pay the penalty of the law. Fulfill the requirements of the law. Conquer death and hell and sin for us. But then we are also agreeing with God on his law in other ways. We are under the law, knowing that we're now set free from its condemnation. We pursue righteousness and we flee from sin. We, as has already been said, we train our hearts and our minds according to Scripture. So what does that mean? It means we seek to avoid things that God's law condemns. It's very simple. Why would we pursue things that God says will ruin us? Why would we pursue things that God says judgment is coming for this? That's the language of Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 9, 10, 11, right? We agree with God and we seek under his law, not condemned by it, but we seek to do the things that God's law commands positively. We consider and love our neighbor in all things. The summary of the latter portion of the Ten Commandments is love your neighbor. We aim to speak in ways that give life and in ways that build up. We strive not to speak in ways that tear others down and destroy the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace in the church. We thought about this when we made our way through Ephesians. Ephesians 4.30, that verse that people love to cite out of context about not giving the devil a foothold. It's all about division in the church and how we speak. Don't speak in such a way that Satan would have an end. And we do all of this, this whole thing of pursuing life according to the word, meditating on the word day and night. This, it's important that we understand this. This is a way of life. We've got to recalibrate our thinking. This is not about a discipline here and a discipline there and a quiet time here. This is a way of living. We would be helped to wrestle and grapple with that perspective. We do all of this together as a church. We were not meant to be sanctified alone. We're sanctified together. We watch over each other because we need that. I'm one of the pastors here, and I am just like everybody else in this room. My heart is prone to wonder. I have cravings that are wicked. And I, like any of us, am one decision away from ruining my life bringing reproach upon the cause of Christ and shame upon this congregation. We protect each other because we need that. We are absolutely deluded if we think that we are not this close from disaster. We face a thousand spiritual dangers every moment. We seek to protect each other. You know why? Because sin is deceitful. Hebrews 3 There is a hardening effect of sin, and it is deceitful beyond all understanding, right? We see this in one another's lives. You know this in your own experience, that when you find yourself living too close to sin, never produces anything good. So we seek, we gather regularly, we encourage one another, we exhort one another all the more as we see the day drawing near, lest we be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We do this together. We apply the means of grace, the word preached, the word read, 
the Lord's table and baptism. We sing and we pray. We pray and we seek to be conformed to God's law by the Spirit. All of that and more is what is entailed in meditating on the law of God day and night for us. And as I've already said, write it down. It's a way of life. It's not an occasional devotion or discipline. And the thing is, as you listen to me talk, I'm not sure how it's landing on you. I don't know what you're thinking, don't know what you're feeling. Maybe a mixture of things. That's okay. But understand this. All of this stuff that we're talking about right now, understood in light of Jesus, none of it is burdensome. Not a bit of it is burdensome. This is not like a heavy yoke that you're being called to bear. This is no, you are free in Christ, now live in the church because Christ has done everything. Love each other, protect each other, watch over one another. Far from being burdensome in our inner man, we want this and we know we need this. So lean into that. The righteous man of Psalm 1 is Jesus and we're going to learn more about him in Psalm 2. Which brings us to our third point of the sermon, right? The second set of two points, point three. The rebellion of the nations and the Christ of God. The rebellion of the nations and the Christ of God. Psalm 2, 1 to 9 is what we're going to look at for a moment. In verses 1 to 3, we read about how the nations rage and rebel against the Lord and against his anointed, the Christ. Notice that, that the nations don't just rage against God, they rage also against Jesus, his anointed one. Why? Well, because as we're going to see in a minute, Jesus is king. Amen? He's king, and people don't like that. Now, with respect to these verses, again, just kind of exercise, it's always good to interpret scripture with scripture, right? How did the apostles understand and apply these verses about the nations raging and plotting against the Lord and his Christ? Well, they understood these verses to be fulfilled pointedly in the betrayal, the arrest, the beating, the mocking, the mock trial, and the crucifixion of Christ. Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 24. The context here, Peter and John have just been released from custody by the Sanhedrin, and the disciples react to that release. And when they heard it, that Peter and John are now free, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. That's Psalm 2, 1 and 2. Then the disciples say, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan predestined to take place. All of the plotting and the raging of the nations against the Lord and against his Christ is in vain. All of it is in accord with the perfect and wise plan of God. And God uses even this, as we've rejoiced in so much lately, he ordains and uses the raging of the nations to accomplish redemption. Praise be to his name. And, of course, in all of this, given that that's all true, the Lord is not shaken by the raging and the plotting of the nations. 
This becomes very clear in the following verses. In verse 4, 5, and 6, God is going to respond to the raging and the plotting. The narrator, the psalmist, David, tells us, he who sits in the heavens laughs. On the one hand, all the raging and the plotting of the nations is not even a thing. He just kind of chuckles at it. He is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. Have you not heard? Have you not known? That is who he is. He hung the heavens like we hang curtains. He numbered the stars and knows them each by name. He sits enthroned and does everything that he pleases. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. The nations are like a drop from a bucket to him. They are like dust on the scales. This is the language of the scripture. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Second half of verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord holds them in derision. Their end, the raging and plotting nations and peoples of the earth, their end will come. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Romans 12, Deuteronomy 32. In verse 5, the Lord will speak to the nations and the peoples in his wrath and terrify them. What will he say? Verse 6, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Zion being the holy city, the heavenly Jerusalem, right, if you will. Who is that king? It's Jesus. So the Lord paraphrases like this. This is how God responds to the raging and the plotting of the nations. You plot, you rage. On the one hand, it's laughable. On the other hand, it doesn't even register. And at another level, I am long-suffering and patient with all. But for my part, I've got my king, my son, my Christ, and he reigns in the heavenly Jerusalem. That's the Lord's response. In verses 7 to 9, the Christ, the anointed one, is going to speak. Now, we would be here all afternoon just thinking about all the places and ways these verses, in particular verse 7, but also verses 8 and 9, are alluded to or cited in the rest of the Bible. There's a bunch of them. We're just going to survey. On verse 7, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. This is the son, this is the Christ speaking. God the Father speaks similar words twice in the earthly ministry of Jesus, once at his baptism, once at his transfiguration. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. In Acts chapter 13 and verse 33, Paul connects this verse, verse 7, to the resurrection of Jesus from the dead as a validation of his work of redemption and the confirmation of the promises of God to save his people. The writer to the Hebrews, in making his argument for the preeminence of Christ in everything, cites this verse in two different places. Chapter 1 and verse 5, Jesus is greater than angels. 
God never said this to an angel. And again in chapter 5. In verses 8 and 9, the father says to the son. The son is recounting this, right? The son is saying, the father said to me, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break or you shall rule them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. God, remember, had promised Abraham that he would save the nations through his promised offspring. Daniel wrote of the Son of Man, quote, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall never be destroyed. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul prays that the saints at Ephesus would know the hope to which they had been called in God and that they would know the riches of the Lord's glorious inheritance in the saints. What is that? It's that Jesus will inherit the nations. He will inherit a people from every tribe and language and people and nation all to the praise of his glory and grace. We read of that people in Revelation chapter 5. We read also in the book of Revelation of the marriage supper of the Lamb, when that people will have made herself ready. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Revelation 19. All of that is in view here in Psalm 2, that the Lord will make the nations and the ends of the earth the possession of the Son. Regarding the rule and the reign of Christ, we learned, remember just a few weeks ago in Genesis 49, that the scepter would never depart from Judah. How a Messiah king would come from Judah's line. We read again in Revelation, almost identical language to Psalm 2 used by Jesus himself. He says, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. The promised ruler, this is the summation. Just soak these things in, right? The promised ruler of the tribe of Judah came. The promised son of David arrived to establish his kingdom forever. And saints, we belong to him. We are his inheritance. He delights in us, and we will reign with him. Point four. Refuge in the Son. Point four. Refuge in the Son. We're going to look at verses 10 to 12 briefly. The psalmist, again, David is the voice in these verses. He exhorts the kings and the rulers of the earth to bow the knee to God's Son. To bow the knee to the Messiah, to serve him in reverence, and to do so with joyful trembling. So when you read that phrase, rejoice with trembling, think about like a small child who is so excited that they're shaking. My kids have done this. They're so geeked up over something that it's like I trembling with joy. 
serve him like that is the exhortation of David. He warns the kings and the rulers, though, of the wrath of the son. We read about that wrath in Revelation 6. In Revelation 6, beginning in verse 15, we read how kings and generals and great ones of the earth, along with everyone else, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? So, judgment is real. It's frightening, harrowing for those who stand in their own merit and who stand in rebellion against the Son. But then the closing words of Psalm 2. Blessed, here we get that word again. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Who's the him? The son. What a beautiful, succinct articulation of the gospel. Blessed are all those who take refuge in the Lord Jesus Christ. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed, be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. The language of taking refuge in the Lord, and in particular, taking refuge in the Lord's Christ, is all over the scriptures. It's a wonderful image for you as you think about what the gospel is. I'm hiding myself in the Lord Jesus Christ. To take refuge in the Son is the only hope for a sinner, which brings us to our final reflection. Taking refuge in the blessed man is the header. Taking refuge in the blessed man. Put your eyes again on the first few verses of Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. As for us, we're none of that in and of ourselves. We are wicked. We are sinners. We are scoffers. We have committed countless sins. Literally millions of them that we could remember and countless millions that we're not even aware of in a room this size. We have broken all of God's commands and have never kept any of them. What hope could there be for wretches like that? Psalm 1.1, blessed is the man. Psalm 2.12, blessed are all who take refuge in that man. That's the hope. That's the point. Blessed is the man, the Christ, and blessed are all who take refuge in him. If you leave here today with anything, leave with that. Psalm 1 and 2, let that be forever burned in our minds. Blessed is the man, and I'm not him. Blessed is everyone who takes refuge in him. 
Psalm 1 begins by describing the man who is blessed, and Psalm 2 ends by describing a group who take refuge in God's Son. Jesus is the blessed man who does not walk, stand, or sit with the wicked, and who delights in the Father's Word and lives in light of it every moment. Jesus is the tree who stands eternally and bears ongoing fruit, who prospers in all that he does. In Psalm 2, that same man is the Lord's anointed. He is the begotten son of the Father. He rules over kings and nations with a rod of iron. This is Jesus, our Savior and our King. Blessed are all who take refuge in him, who trust in him. To use the language of our confession of faith, who accept, receive, and rest in him alone for justification, for sanctification, and for eternal life. Blessed are all who take refuge in him and trust in him because Jesus makes us part of the righteous whose way the Lord knows, and who will never perish. How will we ever stand in the judgment? How will we ever stand in the congregation of the righteous? Only in Christ. He brings us into that sacred assembly. There's a story that a Bible teacher named Harry Ironside told. And it's a good way to close. It is about a visit to Palestine by another man named Joseph Flax. And Flax had the opportunity to address a group of Jews and Muslims while he was in Palestine. And he discussed with them Psalm 1. He read it amongst the group. And he asked the question, Who is this blessed man? of whom the psalmist speaks. This man never walked in the counsel of the wicked or stood in the way of sinners or sat in the seat of mockers. He was an absolutely sinless man. Who is he? Nobody spoke. So Flax asked, was he our great father Abraham? An older man answered back, no, it can't be Abraham. He denied his wife. He told lies about her. So then Flax asked the group again, well, how about the lawgiver, Moses? Was it Moses? Someone else, after a period of time, spoke up and said, no, it can't be Moses either. Because Moses killed a man, and Moses lost his temper by the waters of Meribah. He was disciplined by the Lord for that. So then Flax suggested to the group, well, maybe it was David. That one may be a little bit easier. No, it couldn't have been David. Then there was silence for what was probably minutes of time. And then an older Jewish man stood up and he says, my brothers, I've got this little book here. It's called the New Testament. I've been reading it. And if I could believe this book, if I could be sure that it is true, I would say that the man of the first psalm was Jesus of Nazareth. You doggone right. Praise be to his name. Praise be to our king, who is also our refuge. 
he is the righteous man of Psalm 1. And he is the savior of sinners. And so we, the sinners, the scoffers, the wicked, we have much to celebrate. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. Worthy is he to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing forever and then forever after that. Let's pray.